This is Big Man Tyrone, and you're about to watch the MTG Cabal cast with your hosts, Wode, Thirsty, and Reptar. Sub to us on all your podcast networks at MTG Cabal cast and YouTube. All right, everybody, welcome to the newest episode of the Cabal cast. So this week, uh, in the spirit of reprints and stuff that we've been covering over lately we kind of wanted to do a rubber band topic on like good specs reprints what we kind of look for what reprints we think are good in a post double masters world Mm -hmm. and what goes into us picking these things at least personally uh so we've each got a few bullet points we've got some overarching bullet points but we're just going to touch on what's important to us Mm -hmm. when targeting reprints yep and uh, there's a lot to go down because, you know, in the last 18 to 24 months, we've seen a lot of reprints come in various fashions. So one of the things we want to talk about up front is full art versus alt art and original art. And we're not even really going to talk about foils of these yet. Just when you're looking at these cards, what do you think is going to be the most desirable? When it comes to reprints for me, what determines the variant that I'm going to be picking up in regards to full art, alt art, etc., is where I expect that card to see play. So a good for instance is when the Doomsday Invocation was released. I know that deck has basically a cult following and nothing more in Legacy, and it was going to sit at you know thirty-ish dollars for a while. My expectation was that if I were to buy in on the Doomsday Invocation, I would be doing so to get rid of that to tournament players. However, as Doomsday becomes more popular as a card overall, and there are new cards that are printed with it, a la Thassa's Oracle, which came out much later after the Invocation, I would have looked at turning the 6th edition around for EDH players, because that is the most accessible version. After that, it's the Weatherlight um, black border and i think there's a a reprint and a master set that could be foil but that foil to me is not a tournament staple it's the invocation that's going to be the tournament staple because that's what people are are looking to do for the most part not a lot of people want to buy into master sets foils for their tournament decks especially because a lot of that deck is going to be old border you're playing legacy and just by nature of the cards available to you they're going to be an older border so that's really what I look at. When it came to something like Azika's Chariot, a much more recent card, the options were a little easier. It was either the set version or the uh, alt border version, whatever you want to call it. And that's the one I went with. I figured this is going to be a casual card. It's a cat wagon. And right now, at pre-release time, it's a very affordable card to get at the, in the alternate version. And it'll be an easier move later because it is going to be a unique piece of art. If I, my, my expectation was to move that card as a tournament staple, which it eventually became, and I didn't really think about, about it. Uh, it's in the Sultai Ultimatum deck in standard because you can put your octopus token in it and then proliferate your, or populate your octopus token. Why not? I would have actually bought more of the, um, the regular set version if I thought that demand would have been higher. So... For chariot EDH demand, I went with the variant version because that one is a little more. Uh, it's a little more special. It was uh, eminently uh, affordable all around, and I never expected the card to really pick up in value overall and be more than let's say a five or six dollar uh, foil in the alt version. So as long as I got in early enough, I could still move the foil at a reasonable rate to casual players that were playing EDH. 
So for me, that's kind of my balance is looking at a card and thinking, okay, if my best out is going to be tournament players and it is an older format that I'm going to go with something that's a little more unique, something that's harder to get, something that they can afford because older players dedicate to their decks, they'll pimp where possible. If it's something to go for EDH, then I look for the most accessible version that is one of the cheaper options overall. If the foils for Chariot had not been as approachable as they were, I would have just gone with non-foils overall. But there was a very small delta between the two, so I went with the foils because, like I said, it makes it eminently more pimp, and it was incredibly affordable and still is as a spec. So I think for me, the playability is definitely something that, like where it's played, is also something that factors in. I also think that for me, because I like a little bit more of like the chase foil stuff, mm -hmm. uh, using the example of Doomsday, you were absolutely right that the one to go after was Doomsday. But I know a few people that love foil Japaneseing out their yes. legacy decks. Yes. Yep. So of course, I went for the Masters Japanese foil as cheap as I could possibly get it and 10x'd on it. That's not something that everyone can do, though. No. So for the more lay, like just average, not into the nitty-gritty niche markets, I think going with the playability and the options there is definitely the way to go, with the one caveat being that if there's any EDH play to it, I tend to go for the like more affordable versions of the special card. Okay. You know, I, I tend to go for, you know, if there's an alt art foil that's sub ten dollars, I'm gonna go for that because that's something that I personally know I can sell. Okay. So whether it be over the conversation and just like trying to, you know, socially engineer someone into buying that card. Yeah, yeah. But I tend to go for the affordable special. Even when dealing with legacy, because I know long term I may eat my hat on this spec. This may be something that, like Sarkin's unsealing, my collection grows and the liquidity only gets less and less. Yeah, and that's fine. Yeah. Uh, so a uh, uh, yeah, question I have here, and this might actually be a, a neat dividing line between us, is: so you look at something like the Sultai Triome, mm -hmm. and you have the set version and the full art version. You know, they mm -hmm. both in foil, and they come at disparate prices. And uh, I believe the Sultai one was even a pick on the cast. If, yeah. you know, we go back and we look, okay, Sultai was popular then, it's still popular now. If you're going to spec on that Triome again, do you look at the set version or do you look at the, the full art? So now that we're further removed, I go for the full art. Okay. Because at the time, the desirability, like... Well, first off, we kind of had paper magic then. What a time to be alive. Yeah, right. uh, you know, I, I think that you could pick up the regular in mass at that point because everyone was trying to go for the alt art. And so much of that set was open. The prices were absolutely in the toilet. And I think that you could just pick it up for, you know, dimes on the dollar, basically. Yeah for the set version i think that you're right as time goes on there is a shift uh and if i were specking now i would go for the alt art non-foil okay because i believe it's easier to carve a niche out of the market now that we've had that time elapse huh? that you can scoop some of those up and just sit on them for a little bit and see where the market goes and you may see movement just based on how many you yourself pick up on the market yeah um 
you know, there have been a few picks recently I've made, like planar collapse foil, where it's been like, all right, well, I'm going to pick this up and see what we can do to the price. Mm-hmm. We're going to move the price and see what happens. And sometimes you can get that on stuff like the non-foil triumphs. Yep. Whereas the foils at this point, the price is the price. And that's probably not going to change. No. What may change, and this is what gets tricky, is if it gets printed in a new special form, the value on those non-foils can tank. Yeah, yeah. And that's where it kind of gets into the, like, knowing your timeline for me on how I'm specking on this. And the second I see the reprint, I go to sick deals and I unload them. Yeah. Yeah, so there are a couple more bullet points in what you went over that we will cover in a moment. Um, yeah. For what it's worth, you did pick the non-foil showcase, so you're still running hot on that choice. Yeah. And, like, this is actually the, the dividing line between us. One of the reasons why I haven't bought into the full arts even for myself is because, to me, the Triumphs represent a better hold overall for EDH players, and a $10 barrier to entry represents, you know, the the non-full art triome and several other cards that I could be trading or, or selling to that person. So I'm able to churn more inventory to one individual if my price point is lower on some of these things. Because while we are seeing triumphs, you know, being somewhere between a two and four of an, a number of decks in standard, you, the older you look, the fewer that are played. You know, dwindling from one to zero very quickly in older formats. So for me, that this is kind of moving into the next step, which is uh, liquidity, liquidity, and necessarily how playable are these cards? Sultai Triome, I, I, I leaned on that example, like I said, because it was the pick, and when it was released, eminently playable because that deck was running standard, and we did not see yeah. any change coming in the format. So that card was highly playable. It's a great pick in in alt art for people that want to pick up the alt art stuff that are feeling like it. It's a great pick in uh, set as well because it is highly playable in both uh, casual and constructed uh, formats. And when it comes to liquidity of specs, if I'm operating in the pre-release window, which I don't like to do that often, my expectation is I'm going to be targeting cards that are going to be highly playable. And I say expectation because I'm not a pro player. I'm not on a team. I can only evaluate cards as I see them and I converse about them with others. And whether I win or lose my ex, you know, TBD on some of this stuff, but my expectation of what I pick, because I don't often do it in pre-release times, and I'm usually fairly discerning, and I try and keep my finger on the pulse, is that I'm picking cards that are eminently playable. So, for me, uh, my specs that aren't reserve list are based entirely around playability. And I think that's important, that the liquidity playability factor is huge on this stuff, because, you know, and I'll use this example again, because I let's ride it to the moon as long as we can. Sarkin's unsealing. That card's not very liquid. It's not very playable right now. Uh, that's something that I picked up thinking eventually this may see play. And that's something I look for in more of a long-term hold. Mm-hmm. Where it's something that I was looking in short-term, like a year or less, that playability is important for specs. Like That is absolutely imperative. Yeah. And that's where getting into conversations with your local meta, if that's where you serve. Yeah. If you're mostly known as the guy locally, like you need a card, go to him. He's probably got it. Then you need to have those conversations. If you want to have the competitive gauntlet and you are on a team and a bunch of guys like, hey, you know what? I've got the cards. We can build the decks. Let's go to a GP and see what happens. Mm -hmm. You know, those conversations are important. 
And knowing how playable something is now versus how playable long term is, is something that factors in again to timelines on your specs. Mm-hmm. Um, I may never make money on Sarkin's Unsealing, and I keep digging my hole deeper, and that's fine. <laughs> well, but I, I think, it may happen. Yeah, and I think there's a, a sub point to this because we, we're in agreement on playability, but then there are also times and that this comes up on the cast, and we talk about it in our specs, and there's a segment on, I believe, almost every episode of the EDH Rec cast called Challenge the Stats, where they look at cards yeah. that either are underplayed in certain archetypes or overplayed in certain archetypes. And if you hit rec for Sarkin's on ceiling, you read what it does and you see the generals and you just kind of look at that card and say, okay, this just looks to be underrepresented. Same with Sunbird's Invocation. Two cards that we picked very early on and we harp on because they do great things in EDH. They just need a little bit more of a push. People aren't seeing them enough for one reason or another. And it's like once that ball starts rolling, it's just going to pick up momentum and go. Similarly, yep. when you look at cards that are overplayed, they find some of the weirdest things. Like, there are mono green generals, and there are people submitting mono green decks with the card Farseek in there. You can't get a forest, and there are no forest wastes. So, to the best of my knowledge, Farseek in a mono green deck does, you know, nothing. So, a lot of so these stats swing both ways. So, when we when we look at cards like that, we're trying to avoid the far seeks and try and hit more on cards that are obviously more eminently playable, sometimes a little bit below the surface because that's where we really make our margins. You know, things that are either just up and coming or need a little bit more of a push or a little bit more time, and that's where we really make uh, our margins. And for me, like I said, playability, eminently on constructed stuff, I have to see it do something. I have to you know, be able to read the card and say, it, it slots in right here in the meta. And this is where I think it's going to live, and then I'll move on it. You know, EDH is a, a bit more of a beast, and I've uh, a couple weeks ago I finally released the commander doc that I've been working on. You know, watching as much content as I can and dropping cards in there that look like they overperform. You know, cards that people just aren't paying attention to. The and for me, like these all represent possible specs. They might not be the greatest specs. Not something to mention on the show necessarily, but something to keep your eye on because it's underplayed. And if it pops, it's going to hold. So. I love, you know, liquidity all around. As mentioned, and some of the things we talked about up front with the alt art stuff, invocations, etc., reprintability. So, is the card that I'm specking on reprintable as it stands because it's from the, the, the set proper, so it'll be reprinted as is? Is it alt art? Is it uh, a masterpiece series? There is another good point on here. Is it plain specific or is it universal? And we mention that all the time. Like those are like some yeah. of your bread and butter picks are things that are like localized. And I think that's an important one that a lot of people overlook is reprintability is important when picking a spec regardless of timeline. And finding like knowing ways, knowing things that make it less reprintable or more reprintable is important to not just being stuck with it. You know, taking a card like, you know, uh, anything with the word Liliana in it is okay. Well, as long as Liliana is a planeswalker, there is a chance that this gets reprinted. But if Liliana is somehow removed from the storyline, mm-hmm. all of a sudden we're going to go an extended period where we may not see this card at all yep. because this is something that's specific. That's why, like Dark Slick Shores, the odds of us going back to Mirrodin, I think, are pretty slim, regardless of what Mero says, because they can't go to Mirrodin and not have something busted in half mm-hmm. because well, that's just Mirrodin. how. It- it's any artifact set. Go go back to yeah. to Urza's block, right? 
True, yeah. Um, so seeing these things and saying, okay, well, this makes it a little bit less reprintable. It would have to be in, like, an EDH deck or some kind of supplemental. Well, um, and Planes, pl- sorry, when I say planes, I mean, you know, walking, localized yeah. keywords. So you brought up yeah. Mirrodin, right? Um, Metalcraft, Metalcraft, Imprint. Those are planes. In fact, yeah. Yeah. Those are plain specific keywords as well. It's not just looking at it from the grand scheme of the story. Like, Garuk is finally popping back in and out now while we have Vivian here. What happens with Garuk at the end? We don't know, but he's here, finally. And it's these are things that, you know, the less reprintable something is, the more likely I am to go deep rather than wide. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I especially, and this is something when you talk about reprintability, which we'll touch on in my pick today, formatting of the card is important too. Um, Old border versus new border, does it have the counterfeit circle on it? Does it not? Is it a from the vault? Like, what kind of format can that be reprinted? And that's one of the reasons using the Triome example. The non-foil pack version, they can't reprint that. They're not, well, they can, they can reprint whatever at this point. But the odds of them going back and revisiting that comic book stylized art, which, granted, they did with Kaldheim. These are very comic book stylized arts, but it's done in a completely different way. So thematically it may be similar, but that's not something that that art is necessarily going to get reprinted. Yeah. Similar to the Unholy Strength change. That revised Unholy Strength has some element of replay of, like, financial viability to it because it has the pentagram in the art and the versions after did not. And these are all things that factor in when I'm looking at reprintability. I don't want something that's reprintable just because I tend to go on a longer term with my specs. I want to park them in a box and forget about them. Uh, You know, that's, that's the type of thing that you want to look for because you don't, you know, if you're sinking, you know, a hundred bucks into it, whatever. But if you're sinking three, four, five, all of a sudden, all right, well, I want to make sure this is a sound investment. Yeah. I want this to be worth it. Yeah. How do I make sure it's worth it? Absolutely. Insulating yourself from something like that for a long, for a long-term spec is, is super important, and that's why some of the alt-art stuff is better to pick up than some of the other things. Or um, every now and then when they try and, like, revisit something. So when I picked Expansion, Explosion, uh, I it was not the worst pick because they generally don't do split cards like that all that often. It had been since the Ravnica block prior, I believe, since we got uh, split cards like that. In the interim, they did try whatever they were from Amonkhet block. Those pseudo splits where you have the front half and then you pat yeah. the back half from the graveyard. I forgot what the aftermath. You had the uh, the aftermath cards, right? And they kind of riffed on, on splits. But if Expansion Explosion was a worthwhile long-term spec it would live on the fact that you're not going to see a reprint of that style of split card for another couple of years either until we go back to ravnica or we get another like dedicated gold set where they just want to do weird wizardry stuff and give people a lot of options in standard you know you can make an argument that it might be in strixhaven but they look to be playing around a little more with the mana symbols and we just got a boros card today where it's like Colorless mono symbol, red mono symbol, hybrid red white symbol, white symbol, and it looks like they're trying to do some kind of interesting work in the margins there. Then going back to splits, and that gives you a little bit more wiggle room, a little bit more time. Unique effects similarly. So Chancellor of the Tangle 
the entire Chancellor series wasn't necessarily something that needed to live on Innistrad, or not Innistrad, um, sorry, uh, New Phyrexia. It could have been placed somewhere else. What insulated it from a reprint was the fact that they all had pre-game effects, and Watsi, generally speaking, does not like working in, in that space all that often. Yeah. You get ley lines, like, once in a blue moon, and beyond that, uh, those cards warp formats that they are available in generally speaking the the red and the black one kind of do nothing but the and the blue one but the white and the green absolutely yeah dance in a format and so making sure you're insulated is super important if you're looking for a long-term spec obviously quick flip different but uh yes re reprintability yeah. the super key to, to remember a more interesting point you know do you like it you know do you believe in the card? Do you believe in the length of the spec? Do you believe that it will have legs moving forward? You know, that is, it's difficult. It's an emotional response and it can make or break specs. I think I finally took all of my wingmate rocks out of uh, one of my spec boxes and dumped them in my bulk mythic pile. And that was a spec nice. made based on the fact that I like the card, it was trouncing a format and like emotionally, quote unquote, I moved in when it was super low at the beginning of a format and it climbed a little bit, not as much as I was hoping. And then it just bottomed out before I could really get rid of it. And that actually played more of a heel to my speculation than it did anything else. I think for me, the do I like it kind of dovetails into the next point we're going to make as well which is the more i like a card the more i can sell it so okay. you know if i can sell a card if i can sell someone on a spec if i can say this is why i think this is a good spec and feel it mm -hmm. and that's part of what picking at the end of every episode is, is us making our case why do i like this as a pick why do i like this as a spec it's the type of thing that like i am this is something an argument that i can make that i feel is persuasive I can make that same argument when I sell the card yeah. as when I pick the card. And the more I like it, the more easy I am to sell it. It's the more easy I'm able to get out of it if I have to. Mm -hmm. If it's the point where I'm like, look, I'm just eating it on this and I've got, you know, 600 Sarkins on ceilings. Let me dump 10 off on one guy and let's make an argument for why he should buy 10 of these for 50 cents each. Fine. Uh, and it's kind of like a hedge your bets type of point. And I think it's important because when you like the card, when you think, all right, this is good and I like the pick, you're more able to get other people to like the pick as well. And that's just, look, Rising Tide helps every ship. Mm -hmm. It would get that ship out of the Suez Canal right now. That joke's going to age poorly in a year. Folks, folks uh, yeah. <laughs> but it's the type of thing that I think is very important when picking a spec is, is it something that you agree with in a passionate manner? Because then, all right, I can move in or out of this card pretty easily because I can be persuasive enough. Yeah. And that's all that matters. I, I, I like that viewpoint on it where it's more about not convincing, not tricking yourself into the spec and not like living in your own feedback loop, but just, you know, pitching to somebody else your idea of why this flight of fancy is, is worth it. Um, yeah. You know, to that end because Wingmate Rock was doing its thing, everybody agreed, like, hey, this is where the format's going to be, and then the format just shifted, right? So we got hoisted, but that's kind of the... Uh, I don't want to say part of the life cycle of a constructed spec, but it really is, because things do come and go, and at that point in time in Magic, 
you know, while things were cyclical and uh, that deck did come back round, but without Wingmate Rock, like, we were just kind of living and dying based on what Brad Nelson was brewing for the next Star City event. And thinking about what I have in regards to specs that I've picked up, I don't think there's anything that I couldn't explain to somebody else my position on, why I have it, and why I, I think it is a good idea. And I don't... There's some stuff I've picked up begrudgingly, but at the end of the day, it's not because I didn't believe in the card and how long it was going to be. It's because I didn't want to believe that the, this card could have an impact as such. So... Uh, Fecundity was reprinted in I can't remember what, and then immediately the deck name Dirty Kitty floated around, which is basically just goblins with Fecundity, and you just like yeah. sack your board away and draw cards. And I was like, there's no way, no how this deck becomes decent and modern. If I'm going to pick up this card, it's not because this deck is going to be decent, it's because this card is going to be worthwhile overall. And then, you know, digging in, and eventually I just picked up my playset and another copy to two for EDH. And like, it's things like that where I I just need to be persuaded that the card is actually better than it looks like on the surface, and it might buck what I'm interested in and how I play the game, but at the end of the day, it's still something worthwhile to have and to own. You know, the deck never really took off because Modern's like a turn three and a half format, and that deck is like yeah. turn four and a half at best, but that's kind of TBD. That's why I didn't go you know, terribly deep on Super it. Super hard on it, yeah. Yeah, and I think divorcing yourself from the emotional response to specs and being able to take a step back and be um, like logical about it, discuss it, and welcoming of discerning opinions and then reforming your opinion based on that knowledge is super important when it comes to a lot of these specs. You operate in a bubble, you operate in a feedback loop, and you definitely get hoisted, and like that's how you just lose out. Yep. And that makes similarly makes it better for me long term on some of this stuff well i sit on a lot of these fecundities till the end of time you know absolutely but it's such a good card that there's no reason why i shouldn't have the play set that i do just in case you know yeah. similarly i was a believer in Kozilek the great distortion when it was in standard and that card did nothing because it was all about ulamog and um aetherworks marvel because Ulamog did things immediately, and Kozilek just kind of fell by the wayside. I was a believer in that card from start to finish because it redraws and it allows you to counter, which are two incredibly unique things from a colorless uh, EDH yeah. deck. It's also an additional Eldrazi Titan, so if you're just going to play, you know, big fatties dot deck and just slam them all in, you might as well. And it turns out that that card is really, really good. And I don't mind sitting on the ones that I have until I'm ready to to exit but that was an argument i had to make to people when i was talking about this card i had first-hand experience with it i had to teach people who were just looking at ulamog and saying well this is the one instead like mm, yes but also here's why yeah yeah at two dollars for codes like the great the great distortion you're gonna be really hard pressed to fail on this card you'll fail upwards if anything yeah below it happened uh, and i think the 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 last bullet point that we really want to touch on and it's kind of was gift wrapped to us in the middle of the week it's an article on card sphere uh, by cliff daigle about exactly this specking on foils buying on foils and with the modern era that we're in the higher reprintability of standard set foils how often we're seeing reprints 
collector's boosters uh, entering the ecosystem and doing wonky things to finance the article is titled when to get what you want and yep it is pretty straightforward we'll link it in the in the show notes and you know without spoiling it for people it basically tells you exactly what you might not want to hear when it comes to buying into uh, foils buying into cards you want to own and what the life cycle of you know standard product looks like now what those timelines look like you know with the amount of product that's coming out the timelines we're seeing when it's entering players hands because stores can now sell on the friday of pre-release weekend you can start buying sealed right yeah. without paper events there's no judge comp there's no players comp so it's a, a great look at the ecosystem and talks about what we're seeing now compared to what we are used to and what might be the expected norm coming out of this previously you know where we operated was somewhere between like one three weeks for pre-orders depending on what was coming and when for the most part that's when i start uh price tracking and that's generally where i like to operate and pay attention unless something is just way over costed uh like do you still operate in that first couple of week timeline for a new set have you extended things out you know setting aside the time spiral release stuff or sealed product like if you're looking at you know as legacy players you're not buying a whole lot of standard product no you're you're yeah as, as legacy it's like you get your five or six cards honestly I, on release weekend because that's all the money you're going to invest in the set. And I think that, you know, this article does a good job of touching on the point that now we're kind of in this FOMO mindset of, you know, the best time to play in a tree was probably six months ago, barring that today. And I think that, you know, there are, and for you as well, I know there's times where we're like, well, you kind of want a little bit more information. Mm -hmm. So if I want it for legacy, I just buy it. doesn't yeah. matter. I, you're just going to get it right away. Yeah. If it's something that I'm getting for a pick, though, I, you know, it's yet again, it's more of an art than a science. And it's how much of this am I willing to, like, see? And yeah. do I have enough FOMO for this that, well, the market may trend a little bit faster because of, you know, COVID relief money, tax returns, whatever else, that all of a sudden this, you know, Kozilek doubled way faster than I thought it would. And did I not pick it up in time? So it's kind of like, for me, it's, you know, I'm comfortable buying in now. Mm -hmm. For Planar Collapse, I had paid attention to it for a little bit and picked up a couple copies prior to picking it. For picking the Full Art Sultai Triome, that was pretty much week of. Yep. So that was, all right, in this case, I'm going to get it right away because we have peak open. Well, we're not going to have peak open for a while, yeah. uh, it feels like. And I think that that's contributed lately when there have been specs that I've been in on. It's mostly been, honestly, trolling Facebook posts mm -hmm. uh, and seeing, can I get it there? Because I don't think, you know, as a legacy player, you're just going to get it. Yeah. As a spec, though, I definitely, you know, I don't want to pay whatever the price for, you know, insert version thought sees is 
from Time Spiral Remastered. I just don't think the opportunity exists there, you know? Uh, absolutely. I think what we're coming up with now with Strixhaven presents a unique opportunity, especially to have this discussion. I was you know, joking around with you over the weekend about Nick, Nick Fit and Legacy, and it's like, okay, looking at this set, the way it stands right now, I'm going to buy two cards, uh, you know, X4, and it's going to be Professor Onyx, and it's going to be the, Golgar the Golgari Uncommon. Why? Because you cast Chain of Smog or Chain of Acid, and you just win the game, you know, expectedly on the spot. Yeah, Resistance, yeah. etc., discard, whatever. But those are two cards, and I'm going to buy at two completely different times. I'll yeah. buy the Golgari on Uncommon pretty much on release weekend because people are going to be stocking TCG player. You know, the Gaming Co. puts up infinite everything. So they're yeah. going to have a ton of this Uncommon. Will they be the lowest price? No, but people are going to have to squabble over that. And I'm fine overpaying weekend up for my Golgari Uncommon just to make sure I get my four of. Professor Onyx is probably going to come out at some ridiculous pre-release price. You know, the, it was spoiled. People saw Chain of Smog and things moved immediately, right? So I have to wait for that to kind of cool. And it could be that I wait, you know, a couple weeks or months for it to cool on TCG Player, or there's the immediate turnaround on Facebook. And like you said, I just trawl Facebook and I look for people who crack it on anywhere from pre-release weekend to uh, the end of release weekend and just want to get out immediately and are willing to, you know, deal down from TCG Player price. But that's still a much protracted window than what I'm used to operating in. I picked Expansion Explosion and bought an infinite quantity of those like weeks after the wrap set had been released. We were well outside pre-release uh, pre window, release window. You know, people were playing standard events by the time I picked this card up. And I don't think that's going to happen here much anymore unless you're able to get in on the, 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 the quick entry on TCG Player, like I said, when the gaming co puts their stock up and people race to the bottom to beat them. And you have to kind of play that wait and see because sometimes not everything goes up immediately. Sometimes, you know, people don't price as low as you're going to think they do. Sometimes they just don't want to race to the bottom and they just all re reprice around the same amount. And that's something that I think we're going to see more of as time goes on because... I always harp on getting a playset of Disallow for less than $4 on release weekend. You haven't had a card with that level of playability, that price, in a year now. Because we haven't had the critical mass of opens. And I think that that may be something that sticks around. As release day, you no longer see the race to the bottom. Mm -hmm. You see a race to a market-determined floor that is not going to disappear anytime soon. You're not going to have the people sitting there constantly repricing their inventory that day. They'll just say, this feels like a $2 card. Throw it up for $2. It ends up being $1.25. They'll come in Monday and make it $1.25. Yep. But without the critical mass out there of cards being opened, you know, it's not as important to move it that first weekend because you can be more patient and let the market come to you because there's not as much supply out there. And that's, you know, fundamental free market supply and demand. And if it's not there, then guess what? I get to charge whatever I want. You know, I, I get to charge. I don't have to race to the bottom to move this card because it's not going to be sitting on a shelf for six months. Mm -hmm. I'll be able to just move it in two. Yep, move it whenever. It, yeah, it, it creates a, a new interesting paradigm to operate in and with and creates a, a definite distinction between EDH and Constructed. You know, EDH players have been playing over webcam forever. Uh, a lot of states are finally getting their vaccines or they are reducing the stay-at-home order requirements so now you can actually go out and play with other people. However, LGSs haven't really begun to open up and 
you know, Watsy has effectively still put the kibosh on FNMs. If you want to run your own underground keyboard dojo FNMs using SwissPairings.com, you absolutely can. But I don't see or hear about a lot of places doing that. So there's definitely going to be a disparate market between the two as well. So you got to be careful is the wrong word, but again, cognizant of this because it is they are margins that you can dance in, that you can definitely yeah. operate in to your benefit. You just have to know uh, or set expectations and understand what you're picking up, when, where, how, and for how long you're going to be doing so. Which, again, aren't than science, and you've got to figure out your style. So we wanted to at least touch on what we felt our styles were in an episode, especially, you know, with it seeming like reprint, reprint, reprint is the name of the game now. Uh, you know, we're used to, which the reason we went with double masters is because we felt like the reprint policy of kind has kind of changed since then, where we now have obviously your master's sets, but we're also just doing variant inserts of reprints in every set now as well, yep. uh, especially with back-to-back Time Spiral Remastered and Strixhaven uh, and having multiple versions. And I definitely encourage everyone to read that article because he does touch on what the Vorinclex split did Yes. And I think that's something worth paying attention to because Strixhaven, the collector's boosters, come with the alt-art Japanese version as well. So just something worth keeping an eye on because this is, yet again, wizards artificially and, you know, inflating scarcity. Yeah. Just like they did with Mythics. Yeah, and Double Masters is an, is an interesting call-out. And I guess before we end the main section of the podcast, the really the, uh, another impetus for this episode and starting with Double Masters was the fact that beginning there, there is this kind of awkward transition in mtg finance away from the foils commanding a premium to the non-foils because of what happened with the upc redemption whereby more foil box toppers are not are now out in the open than non-foils so there's just kind of been this flip in population and pricing for the first time in a very long time and from that kind of came the the conversation of okay well when you're looking at things to spec on and we, we tossed around the idea of just talking about foils but it's very difficult because from double masters forward we've had this very difficult problem to deal with of how do you work around foils that are technically by all regards near mint aside from the fact that you cannot put them in a sleeve and play them and how are they going to be handled by grading there's uh, a lot of coin-based communities that also operate in the collectible card markets and we've heard rumors from or not rumors but just murmurs from them talking about this as well and saying that like well you can't really make this equivalency to a coin but if you could this would still not be near mint because it is like inoperable it is not what it this product is not what it should be it cannot command a perfect grade if everything about it is flawless aside from the curl so for us, does that lead us to spec into foils or not? And then we move forward from Double Masters, the thing is just kind of roll downhill. And it seemed a little foolish, foolhardy even, to have an entire episode dedicated to foils, what to do with them, trying to, to fix them, creating your own effectively humidor, dehumidifier, humidifier, based on whatever your own environment in your house is, and just overall look at specs in general. We, don't, we didn't really talk of, about foils a lot in this because of this problem. It's very difficult, difficult to advocate for foils right now because of this problem. 
and pushing people towards looking at foils as a financial vehicle is extremely difficult because at any point in time anybody can argue that you know it, while it's not near mint I can't put it in a sleeve and play it because I can find it all the time and it really just kind of spawned the idea of okay if we're going to be looking at specs from you know double masters forward we're seeing a lot of reprints we're looking at some rubber bands in regards to things like stoneforge mystic and blightsteel colossus Ristic study all these things that have been reprinted in the interim you know what do we want to talk about what what are uh, how do we work around this and it just kind of came to light it's just like well everything that is in foil we can discuss yep. everything really that that isn't foil we can advocate for everything that isn't foil and it just kind of has to you know lay where it lies and until something is done that protects the foil better than it currently is there are options out there I, we retweeted and i think i linked an article from ben blywis about what curling in one direction versus the other means um, and some options that watsi can take there's really not much that we can do in that regard and like i said it seemed a little foolhardy to kind of want to talk about foils in particular in regards to newer foils as a finance vehicle we might still recommend them over time as picks etc you have in the past so there's not a lot of reason to push back on that because they've all been older foils that stand the test of time but how do we operate in that space and the choice is just to kind of not yeah you know. what's quality control jokes insert here yeah but yeah. on a lighter note picks yes okay. so uh, i'll start out only because mine's really hard to defend because it just seems too obvious. So, why not even okay. defend? Just make the case because it's like, why not, right? Uh, so, the card I put on my list a couple couple weeks ago, maybe a month or two, uh, finally popped up on buy list and hovered for a while, picking up uh, Flooded Grove, specifically from uh, A25. It, you know, the Simic filter land, like the rest of them, they're all really decent in EDH. And it just kind of sat for a while after a pop in, uh, in the summer. And it really did not see uh, any kind of fallout after the reprint. It just kind of hovered for a while. And so Card Kingdom right now is buying 24 at about uh, $4. Uh, they're buying three foil copies at 550 TCG Player, as of my write-up in last week, had 98 LP or better at about $5.70. So there's a pretty big delta there right now. But... Uh, the reason I put this on the list is because back in March, uh, early March, so March of this year, three weeks ago, Card Kingdom was only buying 14 at $2. They're buying 24 at 4 so those numbers have almost doubled, both of them. Uh, TCG yeah. player operating a little differently. The number in the market space has dropped, but the price has also dropped, which tells me people are now seeing moving on this. They're just trying to exit at a price that they're happy with. So as far as playability goes, I mean, this card slides into every Simic deck, um, you know. Goes great with Uro. Yeah, uh, it just does everything you need it to, right? Sometimes it could be, and I put the word decision in quotes for a three plus color deck, and I'll, that comes down to like pip count, you know, and what you're trying yeah. to do. So eminently playable. Now, so this plays in every Simic deck or every blue-green blue, uh, blue uh, X-based nice. decks, yeah. yeah, with an EDH, though the latter can be a bit of a stretch if your color requirements are strict or slanted away from Simic. So let's say you're playing Sultai and you're more Demir than you are uh, Sultai, you might not want this. You might actually want the Sunken Ruins, the blue-black one instead. Um, but that still doesn't mean it's not a bad card. 
In a two or three color deck, filter lands remain an easy look to smooth the mana base and always do demand that kind of look as you're building your deck. They ETB untapped, they activate for a single color, and they allow you to cheat or shave on colored sources because of how you can filter. You get double green, double blue, or a combination, right? Super, super easy. They should be a staple within the format somewhere around, I think, the Battle, ba the battle Bond land tier. Um, they might be a little bit below that. I was trying to take into account everything that came into the battlefield untapped naturally and did not require uh, the flash of a basic from a hand or the buddy style lands that require a basic in play. Basically, of all the untapped lands, I think this one rate, these rate really, really highly. So uh, while this is applicable to all filter lands, the reason for the Simic pick is that we continue to get better and better Simic cards with each set heading into Strixhaven where we just started getting oh, yeah. spoilers and we're seeing great Simic cards overall. Uh, we just got another, I think it's parallel live style creature. Like Simic just is, is the nut. Like, so this it's is the one, big. yeah, this is the one I focus on over all the others, but still Cascade Bluffs is blue, red, Twilight Mire, black, white, Fetid Teeth, black, green, rugged prairie, uh, red, white as Strixhaven is dedicated to these enemy color gills. I would give them all a look. If you know, if you don't like Flooded Grove because the price is a little too high to start, the other ones should still be eminently playable in any deck like this. My timeline for this is, uh, you know, about six to nine months. So with Strixhaven being dedicated to enemy color guilds and spoilers just starting, I think six to nine months is where we get our, our profits in to buy a list. Um, and to go back to the stocks graph, let me bring that up real quick. So in Q3 2020, we see that drop that I mentioned earlier, and that led to stagnation until a call time release. And uh, with that we've basically seen kind of an uptick in market from there. And with what we're getting from Strixhaven and coming out of call time, I expect renewed demand to carry this forward back up towards eight to $10, which it was at its peak. Uh, Simic is only getting more love over time. And until we hit Innistrad and focus shifts away from high octane green, there really should be no further stagnation in this card at all. It's just weird to try and have to make a pitch on filter lands, which just seems like they don't receive the optics that they should. Yeah. But they were, uh, complete aside, prior to the A25 printing, these things were actually really expensive because they were yeah. from Lorwyn block only, aside from Graven Cairns that had a pre-printing and future site. Future site, yeah. yeah. So if we look at the, the <clears throat> even tied version on stocks, like it was a $20 card for a long time. Like these things held a premium. And I think in, interest might be the wrong word here, but at least um, demand for them just wasn't there because they were so expensive, so yeah. expensive prohibitively. Like I mentioned before, for $20, you could just churn a lot more stock to one person if this land is, you know, five eight or ten dollars and if it's 20 because you get this and other cards out it's just hard to, it's kind of a bitter pill to swallow sometimes when you're paying twenty dollars for a filter land and it's not even a shock yeah especially because at that point it was all EDH players so they needed one yep so yeah and it, at least and then cascade bluffs was in modern and storm and twilight mire was in jund or black green value deck so those commanded a, a, yeah numbers for a reason the the other three were just kind of edh floaters priced on scarcity and with that kind of holding back demand i think they just kind of fell out of the edh purview yeah i i think it's a solid one i also like 
you know, look, I, you said it. We're all aboard the Simic choo-choo now. You know, historically, it was always black-blue. I think it's pretty clear, based on the last year, that green-blue is where we're going. Yeah. Better or worse. Hooray. Yeah. Poor and, bro. And, but like I said uh, up front, it feels weird, and it's kind of difficult to just try and defend this pick because they're all so good. But at the same time, everything I said is pretty much, aside from the popularity of Simic over the last year, is is applicable to the other four as well. None of them are really bad looks overall, unless you want to make no. an argument for the Orzov one being piss poor. But yeah, sure, go for it. I think they're all extremely valuable in terms of finance and uh, financial vehicles. And I would expect any of them to be as successful moving forward as the Simic one is, especially with Strixhaven being as focused as it is on these particular five. I like it. Mine, and we said we'd touch on this, or I said I'd, we'd touch on this later, uh, Time Spiral Remastered, Foil, Slimefoot the Stowaway. So why? Well, stock is super volatile. Uh, at one point release day, there were 13 copies, then it was down to three, and as we are recording, we are up to a whopping 16 foils. All while this was going on, it was still seeing a lot of traction on Facebook on sale posts, not a lot of ISO posts. So the interesting thing about this, obviously, it's a legendary fungus. It lets you do sapperlings, thalids, whatever you want as a casual tribal deck. I don't think this is super reprintable outside of a set like Time Spiral Remastered. Slimefoot is plain specific. Old Border is not something that they're doing a lot of because, frankly, it looks like shit. Uh, at least compared to the old Old Border, old border ones, this looks real bad. Um, it's just a great casual card. And in terms of commanders, it's as good as it gets for Sapperlings because, yes, Thelen is there. But this gets you access to removal and a whole extra slew of Thalids, Sapperlings, and Sacrifice outlets, yep. which is important for Slimefoot's ability. So right now we're sitting at around 30 bucks. The thing is, I can see this just casually making its way up to 100 kind of like some of the Kamigawa block legends did that didn't see a whole lot of EDH play, but just by merit of being like a casual commander that people liked, well, if you're going to throw 100 bucks at a card in your deck, it's going to be your general. Yep, yeah. So I'd say that if we don't see a reprint, you're looking at probably about a seven-plus month turnaround. So again, this is a little bit longer on the scale, uh, where you'll go from $30 retail to almost doubling up on buy lists. And this is another example where it's not going to take a whole lot to make the market move. You know, the first page of listings on TCG is all under $40, and that's 10 of your six or 12 of your 16 listings right there. Sorry, 10. Well, at that point, you shoot up to 40 and then 75 for the last two. So it's the kind of thing that we're not getting a huge restock on this. Supply is what supply is. And people who want this, it was something like, what, 92 boxes that you'd have to open to get a specific foil yeah. old border card? That's absurd. So if you've got someone looking for this, they're going to scour for it because they need the foil slime foot. It's not an impulse buy. It's something that if you have a booth, they're going to say, hey, you got foil slime foot from Time Spiral Remastered? Nope, sorry. All right, cool. I'm going to move to the next booth then because yeah. that's what I'm here for. And I think that's the important thing is that these this is a card that someone wants. 
Yes. It's yeah. the only card they want. But when you're dealing with someone, having this card that gets their foot in the door is often the key to opening up their trade binder. So I think that it is a super solid pick contingent on us getting paper magic again. Mm. And I do want to have that caveat because when you're trading with someone, when you're at a GP and there's that guy at the EDH table that just built a slime foot deck because he likes a dice factory. Yep. He needs that foil slime foot. And this is your gateway drug, so to speak. So I think it's solid. I think the reprintability, which we touched on is low. The one thing it doesn't have going for it, and this is counter to the point I made earlier, I don't like it, but that's just because I'm an old fuddy-duddy who doesn't like that they're redoing old border foils and it doesn't look as good without the star in the corner. That, that's fair. Um, and if this pick sounds familiar... The good because, star. Yeah, yeah, true, true, true. If this pick sounds familiar, uh, it is uh, in the first year of this cast, episode 35, uh, Slimefoot set foil was uh, a pick that we made for almost the exact same reasons and you know this this pick basically checks almost all the boxes that we talked about in this episode of you know while Slimefoot itself was reprintable which we see we got a version of it that really is not because it is now in old border foils it is not terribly illiquid as we're seeing you know there there is stock movement on it and there is going to be demand one of the the things i I don't think about it all the time, but then I remember I've done it and I've watched people do it. Is uh, like you said, they're going to scour for this card and they're going to up because they want to upgrade their general. And generally, no pun intended, speaking, when that happens, it's because effectively their 99 is locked in, or maybe they're like 105 or whatever, right? It's all locked in, so now they can start the process of upgrading their their generals, and they might go through phases of that. So it might be. Uh, Dominaria non-foil, Dominaria foil, Old Border non-foil, and then they'll just you know keep working up the ladder as they find or gain access to you know these cards. It's this interesting kind of level up level up prospect you know that we see, and this is one of the first times in a while that we've had a really good reprint of a previous pick that actually demanded us to go back and look and decide. Okay. You know, if we're going to be repicking this, is it for optics or is it for another reason? And it, it's for another reason because this stands on its own as an example. And I, I, I like the pick overall. The price trajectory, it's not hard to really argue with because, in all honesty, who the fuck knows? Yeah. Uh, it was either Morrow or Gavin today who was like, yo, we heard you like old border cards, so we're going to put more old border cards in your cards. And it's just like, fuck off. Yeah. <laughs> Please. They're not old border. They're crap. Yeah. Like, so will, will, be, will we be getting more old border card, cards? I would say so. Are we going to get Slimefoot again? Probably not. It's not Thought Season. It's not Ponder. You know, I re well, we, might, we might see Slimefoot evolved and get the Gitrog monster. That's about it. Or what is it? Yeah. Chub Toads. It's like a high school Chub photo with Chub yeah. Toad. And like, <laughs> as an adult, it's yeah. Get Rock. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so this, this stands to reason. It's just like the Doomsday Invocation. This is kind of like the low-hanging fruit of the Time Spiral Remastered. You don't know there are going to be people that are going to be out there looking for it because they're ready to pimp. And just having these on hand out there ready is definitely going to be the way to go. Do you want to go deep and drop 120, 150 on a bunch of them? I don't know, probably not. I wouldn't. Uh, no. 
If I had the ability to just spout out and get a few, I'd probably get three, maybe four yeah. at the most. Just because I don't know how often I'd be able to churn them. But just like you said, it's that weird piece that if you have it, it doesn't matter how how long it sits in your binder. You're going to bump up against somebody who's looking for it. Or when you're a GP vendor, if it's just somewhere in your EDH stock, it's going to be the key, right? And it's not difficult to just bring one random thing, even if it just stays eternally in your backfill. Yeah. Right? You have four listed on the site, but you have a fifth one floating in your backfill. Somebody asks for it, and you're one person who just checks show stock knows. Like, then you're going to really make somebody's day say demand and probably give somebody like the best customer experience they've ever had on a, on a GP for like there are way too many pluses on this card uh, than I'll probably most of the other picks we've had recently unless you want to chase hundred dollar bills selling Urge's legacy foils but uh, <laughs> then all those positives just look like Benjamins so yeah difference <laughs> I don't always make good picks. There we go. But but Time Vault worked out, and that was my most expensive one. Yeah, no, Time, time Vault worked out. Look, it's hard because TCG players are a pain in the ass, and they don't let you just pull a lot of data with Google Docs, but Time Vault was a, a very good one if you could jump in. Man, I still remember talking yeah. to you about that, walking through work. All right, but I think that's going to be it for today. We'll be back next week with something just as interesting, I promise, and we might or may might not harp on Commander Legends because why not? But for at MTG Cabalcast that you can find on Twitter, Patreon, Facebook, YouTube, Spotify, Stitcher, Audible. I Apple am... did we say Apple? Yeah, I just said Audible. Oh right, yeah. I forgot they changed. Yep. Okay. I I am at Halt I am Reptar. You are at Thirsty Sizzler. We'll see you next week. <laughs>